It's a joy to be with you today. Uh, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll be looking at a few verses, really one paragraph in Hebrews 10 this morning. Uh, but I do want to bring you greetings from both uh, friends at, at Second, as Dale mentioned, that's where my family and I normally worship, and then also by those at, at the seminary. So we're, we're very grateful for the work that the Lord's doing here. We're grateful for the way in which you've taken in our, uh, our friend uh, Dale, and, and thank you for your welcome here today. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll begin reading in verse 19, and then go through verse 25 of this same chapter. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19 and going through verse 25. Remember as I read, and as you follow along reading in your own Bibles, that this is the word of God that we're reading. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is accurate and true, and that it is also living and active. This is not a dead letter, but your spirit works through your word. You call this the sword of your spirit. And so we pray for your spirit's ministry in our midst this morning. We thank you that we can have your word, and you've entrusted it to us as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we would ask this morning... That by your spirit you would take your word, convict us of sin, train us in righteousness, thoroughly equip us for every good work. Ultimately, we would ask that you would glorify your son as we open your word. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. If you watch the news or follow any of the stories that are current pretty much any month of the year, One of the repeated themes, one of the repeated uh, stories that the news put in front of us are are stories about people's level of confidence in the government in particular. It happens right before an election and it happens right after election an election. It happens a year in. It happens when any, when there's any major turmoil, whether it's economic turmoil or turmoil overseas, the, the question will be asked, what, what is your level of confidence? How confident are you in the way in which the administration is handling these things? We also see this question put before us, not in terms of the government sometimes, but sometimes in terms of ourselves. You don't have to look too far in a bookstore or on the internet for advice about how to build your confidence, not necessarily in something external, but in yourself. The question is, how do you raise your own confidence in your own abilities? 
whether it's in your work or whether it's in your studies or whether it's in your relationships. And so this question of confidence, this question of confidence either in those who are leading us or confidence in ourselves is a question that is often put in front of us. In fact, it's put in front of us so often that we might begin to think that it is the question of our day. How much confidence do I have in those who are leading us? Or how much confidence do I have in ourselves? It seems to be almost considered the make or break issue in our lives. And I say all of this because the paragraph that we're looking at today in Hebrews chapter 10 is actually premised on the notion of confidence. It's it's based on the idea that to be a Christian is to have a certain kind of confidence. But what we'll see is it's not confidence in ourselves, and it's not confidence in human governments or in those who are leading us in the, in the human sphere. Rather, it says this in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... Now, I want to stop there on that verse because I would imagine that if I had pulled all of you on your way in the door and I had said, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is the essence of the Christian faith? I doubt very strongly if any of us, and this would be true in any congregation, would have said this. But this is what the writer to Hebrews considers to be of the utmost significance in the Christian life. To be a Christian, the writer to Hebrews says, means that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now in order to understand what he means by the holy places and in order to understand what he's describing in terms of this confidence, we have to understand something of the Old Testament background. All the original readers would have instinctively understood what he's describing when he's describing the holy places. But for us, it might be a little vague. In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and then in the temple, that both of those buildings were designed in such a way to, to keep most people out from the most holy place. You know how the temple was designed. There was a place on the outside where you would go and bring your offering. And immediately as you would enter, you would be handing it off to a priest. And he would take it from there. And and that priest himself was able to venture somewhat further into the tabernacle or the temple than you could as a worshiper. But then there was this most holy place. The holy of holies. And that, that room could only be accessed one day per year by one man in the nation of Israel. The high priest could go in to the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. And there were elaborate rituals associated with this. The, the high priest had to bring blood for his own sin and cast it upon the altar. And, and then he had to bring blood for the sin of the people. 
And so everything had to be carried out in, in precisely the right way. He had to undergo certain washings uh, before that day and on that day. He had to wear certain clothing on that day. And we know from the time in which this book was written in the first century that that day was a day of almost great tension among the Jewish people. Because the high priest was doing something that was, on the one hand, a great privilege, but was also, also involved a certain kind of danger. He's the only one allowed in, and he has to do it just right, because he's entering the most holy place, the place where God's visible presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And the writer to Hebrews takes all of that and says, to be a Christian means that we have Confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And I think for us today, it's very difficult to appreciate the significance of that statement. To sort of feel the weight of that on us. We have privileges granted to us as ordinary believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that the high priest himself had only once per year. And he had to go with blood. And we go with blood in a sense too, but the writer to Hebrews tells us it's the blood of Jesus, as he said earlier, the once for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no longer a need for ongoing sacrifices. There was this one sacrifice, this perfect sacrifice. And therefore, we have confidence To enter, he writes earlier, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And the writer to Hebrews goes on in chapter 9 to say this, for the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. But how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There has been a once for all sacrifice by the Lord Jesus Christ for those who are his, and therefore those who are united to Christ through faith have confident access to the holy places. But look at what he says in verse 21. In verse 21, he adds to this. Not only do we have confident access, but we have a great high priest over the house of God. Again, you can cast your mind back to the book of Leviticus or the book of Exodus where some of these original regulations are given And you recognize very quickly that the priests played an important role. When you took your sacrifice, you handed it over to the priest. And then, in a sense, you were counting on the priest to take it from there and to handle your sacrifice rightly. In fact, we see throughout many periods in the Old Testament that the priest did not handle the sacrifices rightly. So while you, as a believer, might have in your heart to do this in faith, The reality is you are handing it over to a sinner. And you are handing it over to a sinner who was wicked in many many aspects. This is underscored on day one of the tabernacle. 
Do you remember what happened on the grand opening day of the tabernacle? It's recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 10. The first day of the tabernacle, they've just constructed it. God's visible presence has come down into the most holy place. And Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, go in to offer uh, some kind of incense offering to the Lord. But what Leviticus 10 tells us is they went in and they offered strange fire. And just like that, the Lord killed them, struck them down immediately. And, and what must that have done to the mindset of Israelite believers? Uh, I can do everything according to the law. And yet I'm handing it over to men like Nadab and Abihu who might, from their vantage point, break God's law and be judged for it. So there was this inherent instability to the system because not only did you yourself have to be right with the Lord, but the priest himself had to handle things in the way that was prescribed by Scripture. And you see what the writer to Hebrews says is, now you have confident access And you have a great high priest, a perfect high priest over the house of God. Furthermore, Hebrews has already told us that the greatness of Jesus' priesthood is not just in his perfection, although it is in that he has perfectly satisfied our needs. But he's also a sympathetic high priest, the writer to Hebrews says. he's, He's familiar with all our weaknesses Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so when we go through him to God, we're going through someone who who understands what it is to be human, who understands in his human nature all that we suffer, all that we endure, these testings and trials that we have. And he's perfect. And he's kept the Father's law and his sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice. Now those privileges, those spiritual realities, are for every Christian, the writer to Hebrews says. All of you who are united through faith in Jesus Christ have confident access, should have confident access to God. And you have a great high priest over the house of God. Now I want to pause there and say something though. Because while the whole paragraph is premised on those truths, on those great gospel realities, there's another side to it. Because what I have to say to you, although the writer to Hebrews doesn't go into detail about this in this paragraph, although he does elsewhere, these realities are not true for those who are apart from Christ. So so if you're not united to Christ through faith, if you're not trusting in Him for your salvation, if you're not submitted to Him as your King, your God, then, then the reality is you don't have confidence to enter the holy places. You you can't have this kind of confidence. And the priesthood of Christ, for as great as it is, is not is not for you apart from Him. Oh, but Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And I will raise him up on the last day. He gives a free offer to all who are apart from him to come to him. To take him as their savior and king. And to have him as their priest and sacrifice. Well, 
If you're a Christian, there are three commands, three imperatives in this paragraph that he draws out from this premise of a great sacrifice, a, a confident access, and a great high priest. He, he says there are three implications of this, three commands. And you can see them if you're using the English Standard Version. You can see them because they each begin with the word, let us. There's one in verse 22, there's one in verse 23, and there's one in verse 24. These are the three natural implications or natural commands that flow out from those great realities. How do we live in light of the confident access we have? And the first implication, the first command that's given to all Christians, because you have this confident access, this really unthinkable access to God from the perspective of the Old Testament, the first command is in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now what does he mean? What does he mean when he commands you to draw near because of the access you have. Well, again, we can look to the Old Testament to start because that command, draw near, is used frequently in the book of Leviticus. Very often it's used for the people to draw near to the tabernacle, and then more often it's used for the priests to draw near to God. So, for instance, in Leviticus 9, when Moses is speaking to Aaron... He says, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people as the Lord has commanded. So in the Old Testament sacrificial system, to be commanded to draw near was in fact to to literally, in, in a spatial way, draw nearer to the visible presence of God. But you know how it's used in the New Testament. In the New Testament, for instance, in the book of James, James uses it much more broadly. He's not talking about spatially drawing near or drawing near to a physical temple, but he simply says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And this is used throughout the book of Hebrews as well. In fact, it's used six times, this command to draw near in the book of Hebrews. And perhaps the one that should stick out most in our mind is in Hebrews chapter 4, where the writer says this, Let us then, with confidence, the same language he's using here in chapter 10, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find grace to help in our time of need. In other words, what is he saying here in Hebrews chapter 10? Because of the confident access you have, the first and most natural command and implication is you need to devote yourself to prayer. You need to draw near to your God in prayer, draw near to his throne of grace to find grace to help in your time of need. So the question that's put before us by this text, given the confident access that we have, is do you pray? Do you draw near to that throne of grace in the way that you ought to? Do you take advantage of this great privilege that is yours? To draw near to God with confidence. There are all kinds of reasons that we avoid doing this. Jesus speaks to each of them in different places. He, he speaks to our, uh, our discouragement sometimes in prayer. And he commands us to pray and not to lose heart. 
He often rebukes the disciples for their unbelief and sees that as the root of their prayerlessness or their fatigue and exhaustion, seeing that as a contributing factor to their lack of prayer. But how often does Jesus himself model for us this life of prayer? We'll frequently read in the Gospels, and he withdrew to a quiet place to pray. He got up early in order to pray. He withdrew to a desolate place in order to pray. And we see the logic of all of that because Jesus, of course, says the Son of God knew what it was to have this kind of intimate access with the Father, this kind of access that he says we have through him. And so what did he do? He prayed. You know, there have been times in history where Christians have been called by outsiders simply by this designation. Those are people who pray. You can read that in the first few centuries of the Christian church. Christians are called the people who pray. I wonder if that would be said of you by those who know you best. Oh, she is so confident in her access to the Lord that she devotes herself to prayer. She does draw near to God. Uh, He knows the high priestly ministry of Christ. And so he goes to God in prayer, knowing that to draw near to God, God promises he will draw near to him. What about this second section in verse 22? Drawing near in full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Well, again, this is language from the sacrificial system. These are rituals that the priests would have to perform as they prepared to draw near to God. They would have to wash themselves, to purify themselves, to uh, follow certain cleansing rituals as they entered the house of God. But what the prophet Ezekiel does with that Levitical language is something that I think the writer to Hebrews is drawing upon. Because the prophet Ezekiel takes that that sprinkling clean, that washing with water that we see in Leviticus 4 and Leviticus 13. And in Ezekiel 36, he, in a sense, pulls the thread of that and talks about the work of the Spirit among God's people. And he says that what the Spirit of God is going to do is the Spirit of God is going to wash you, sprinkle you clean, And he'll do that for all those who are God's people and and, and indwell them in a special way. It's this washing by water and the spirit that the prophet Ezekiel speaks of and that Jesus himself speaks of in John chapter 3. And I think that's exactly what the writer to Hebrews means here. We draw near to God with full assurance and we do that because of the spirit's work in our lives. Because God the Holy Spirit, in in giving us new birth in Christ, bringing us to life in Christ, opening our eyes to the truths of the gospel, and indwelling us, that, that can be described as a kind of sprinkling of our consciences, sprinkling of our heart, washing us from the inside. This is one of the great promises of salvation that are, that's given in the Old Testament and then repeated and made clear for us in the New Testament that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul says in Titus 3, he, he's, he saved you by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's not merely that our sins have been canceled, that our debt has been paid, although that is true. It's also that we have been cleansed from the inside. And Jesus says, unless a man be born again by the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Ah, but for those who have been born again, if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit and cleansed in that way, then draw near to God with full assurance of faith. You look at the work of the Spirit in your life and it grows in you that assurance that you are His and He is yours. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul says. And that that should provoke you to draw near to Him in prayer. With this full assurance, your body washed, as it were, with pure water. Well, that's the first imperative. And I have to ask you, is it is it an advantage? Is it a is it a Is it a privilege that you exercise? The second imperative is this. In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. We have to acknowledge when we look at ourselves that our hope in the future often ebbs and flows. You know, hope in the Bible is not this vague sense that things might be better tomorrow. It's a confident expectation based on what God has promised in his word. You know, you may you may have very little hope and confidence in what you see in the world. And I wouldn't argue you out of that. But your hope in what God has promised for the future, the Bible says, ought to be firm and solid. But the the scriptures know that our hope often wavers. In fact, the writer to Hebrews says in chapter 12, just a few chapters after this, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider him who all sinful humanity was against, was mocking, wanted dead, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The writer to Hebrews, the Lord himself, knows that our hope often wavers. And yet he says, because of the confident access you have, hold fast to your hope. We know that those who received this were wavering in many ways. In fact, the writer earlier in the book tells them that, that by this point they should have been teachers, all of them. But in fact, they needed to be reminded again of the basics of the Christian faith and that they they, they were beginning to flag in their, in their enthusiasm for the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us go through periods like that. But the writer to Hebrews says, because of the confident access, don't lose your hope in the future. Hold on to it. And the key really is in verse 23. How is it that we're not to lose hope? How is it that we're to hold on to our hope without wavering? And the answer is very clear because... He who promised is faithful. The reason why we don't lose hope is not because our circumstances look like they're going to change. It's not because we see from a human perspective the light at the end of the tunnel. It's not even because we can discern from the times that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is near, although it may well be. No, it's because the one who made the promises to us is faithful. 
Because when Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out, he also said, and I will raise him up at the last day. And that Jesus, the God-man, is raised from the dead and has been faithful to every promise he ever made. And he will be faithful in the promises he's made to you for the future. The the promises of God, one uh, Puritan writer said, are like, are like a promissory note to us. Almost like a, a last will and testament to us. And what he goes on to say is, we need to study it. We need to be familiar with the promises of God. We need to know every line and every detail so that we can almost recite them, as it were, from memory. We know exactly what it is that he's promised to us. And when our hope falters, we we consider the faithfulness of the one who has made those promises. Do you know the promises of God in that way? Do you know what Jesus has promised to those who are his? Do, Do you know that he says that those who are his through faith are also joint heirs with him? That, that the Holy Spirit is, is just a down payment of the great inheritance, eternal inheritance that is ours? That's, that's unfathomable. If I told you that in seven days you would inherit some great sum of money, let's say a hundred million dollars, you'd want to know all the details of that And it would affect your thinking from the minute you heard the promise, from the minute you were assured that it was true. Jesus says, for those who are mine, you're you're eternal joint heirs of the kingdom that I have with the Father. Are those promises ones that you reflect on, meditate on, knowing that he who promised is faithful? You see, this is why the Apostle Paul can say things like this. Really astonishing things. I consider the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. Or this light momentary affliction is is working in me an eternal weight of glory. In Christ. That's the difference that hope makes. And he who promised is faithful. The third imperative is in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Now, when I was first paying attention to the teaching of the scriptures and sitting under the teaching of the word of God, the verse in this paragraph that many people often pointed me to was actually verse 25. If you look at verse 25, and maybe you've had this repeated to you as well, particularly if you grew up in the church, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And that's a verse that's often used, and I think rightly used, that's often used to say, look, Christians should be meeting together with one another. It's very important if you're at all able to be in church. And that's, that's the right emphasis, I think, from verse 25. But notice the way the argument works. 
Actually, verse 25 is just an extension of the real command. The real command here is not in verse 25, don't neglect to meet together, although that is true. But actually, the command is in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And so what he's saying is not less than you need to gather together, it's actually more than that. Because not only is he saying you need to gather together, but he's saying that you need to consider to reflect ahead of time. That's what that term means, to reflect ahead of time about how you can be used to stir up others to love and good works. Do you think about that when you're coming in on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening? Do you think about it when you're meeting on Wednesdays? You think ahead of time, how can I be used to stir up others to love and good works? It does take careful reflection and consideration because all of us know that there are people in our lives who what they really need is just encouragement. They just need someone to put an arm around them and to keep them going. And there are some people, we have to admit, maybe we fall into this category from time to time, who need something a little more confrontational. They need someone to actually call them out on some patterns in their life, some habits they're developing, some ways in which they interact with other people. But the point is, we're not to be just reactionary in those situations. We're actually, the writer to Hebrews says, to consider ahead of time how we can stir up one another to love and good works. What a very different focus this is than the one we so often have. How often do we drive away from meeting with other Christians, either on the Lord's Day or at some other time, and we think to ourselves, well, I didn't get very much out of that. No, the writer to Hebrews says that's the wrong way to think about it. Because actually, while going in and while leaving, you're thinking about how you can be used to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Again, there's a tremendous realism inherent in all of this. Just as he knows that we so frequently forsake prayer and that our hope often falters, he also knows that we we all need one another. There's no such thing as solo Christianity in the New Testament. There's no way in which the Bible conceives of us as as doing it alone, as going it alone. In fact, what does John say when he's diagnosing the false teachers? How do we know they were not of us? Because he says they went out from us. And so therefore we know that they weren't really ever of us. Or what does Paul say to Timothy when he's diagnosing how Timothy needs to behave. He says, Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then there's this little clause he adds to the end. Pursue those things along with those who call on the name of the Lord. In other words, Timothy, you're pursuing these things and you're meant to pursue them, but not in isolation, along with others. Or even think about Jesus himself. Jesus, the God-man, sinlessly perfect. But what does the Bible say about Jesus' participation in the regular worship of his day? Well, Luke says this, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. If anyone in all of human history had reason to ignore the fellowship and worship of of God, 
We would say it was Jesus himself, the God-man. And yet, as was his custom, there he was, Sabbath by Sabbath, in the synagogue. The psalmist talks about the discouragement that almost overwhelmed him in Psalm 73. And he says, as he thought about the world and what was going on, as we might think about it as him reading the newspaper and looking at his neighbors, he said, it was a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. This is the note struck here in verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, of course, that means not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now I want to address you again very briefly if you're not a Christian. Because perhaps you might say, even as you think about this, that these are just the kinds of things you're looking for in life. You would like to have confidence that you know God and are known by Him. You would like to have some kind of expectation, some some real hope for the future. And perhaps you might also say that you would like to have, you would love to have friends who cared for you and who loved you and who really wanted what was best for you and were willing to challenge you on those things. And what I would say to you is those are all important things for you to think about, to reflect on, But if you put those things on a list and try to generate them yourself or generate them apart from Jesus Christ, you won't have any success. What the Bible teaches us is that these things are outcomes of the work of Jesus Christ alone. It's because we have confidence, it's because of the high priestly work of Christ that these are things we both have and can pursue. And if you're a Christian... I want to point out something that you probably noticed in this text. Each of these commands hinges on something that God has done or that God will do. In other words, to be a Christian means we have confidence, but it's not in ourselves. It's in God. The whole thing is a therefore, beginning in verse 19. And in verse 22, it's God who has sprinkled clean our hearts. In verse 23, it's God who is faithful to his promises, and specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 23, in verse 25, it's the day of Christ's return, which is near, and which we encourage one another in light of. Because of all of this, because it's the good news of Jesus Christ, because of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension on our behalf, it's it's because of his great and precious promises that these things are ours. And because of that good news, because of the reality of these great gifts that we have in Jesus, what does the writer to Hebrews tell us to do? Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your precious word. We need these reminders. We need these instructions. May we not leave this place without taking to heart these things. Convict us in the ways in which we need to continue to strive.
to live in light of the confident access you give us. And we do thank you for that confident access we have in Christ. We come to you asking for your help in Christ's name, knowing that he is our great king and priest. And we ask it in his name. Amen.